Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Education Suspended is a production of Intricate Roots Educational Consulting Services. Our editor and production manager is Katie Kunin. Our producer is Jamie Higa, and our music is provided by Poets Row. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Education Suspended. Pfeiffer here. Excited to have you all back and listening to another great episode. Today is October 24th, and I just got to say, it's my daughter's third birthday. Holy buckets. And I know so many of you who listen to this podcast gave us such support and encouragement when she was born. And so, so just wanted to say thank you to all of you for doing that. I couldn't think of a more fun interview to release on Quinn's birthday. We sit down with Megan Bartlett, who is the founder for the Center of Healing and Justice Through Sport. Let me say that again, only because it's Steve Grainer's favorite title in the whole universe, the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. It is phenomenal what this organization is doing to try and promote equity and access to sport and larger than that to ensure that our coaches who are working with our student athletes have the correct training. I come from the lens of there there are so many phenomenal things that come through sport, but I also recognize that my experience with sport was really privileged, which is definitely not the norm for so many out there. And it's just a good conversation to have with Megan and, and she and her organization are working so hard for so many student athletes. So Megan, thank you for your time. Again, everyone, thanks for listening. We are grateful for every single one of you. Thanks for telling your friends, telling your coworkers, posting your stickers. <laughs> I joke, but really thanks for that. Okay. Take care of yourselves, everybody. Sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Megan Bartlett. You know, Megan, we're so excited to have you here. And I think I think there's so many pieces that we could go in the world of sport. We could go anywhere. Yeah. We could go anywhere. We have been trying to tee this up for a long time. You know the script. You know how we start. Introduce yourself, what you do, how you got there, and connections to your educational experience. And then we will deep dive after that. Sounds great. Well, I'm really excited to be here. My name is Megan Bartlett. I work at an organization called the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport, which is a lot of words, um, but a lot of words that I think have been part of my journey, both from an education perspective and then obviously from the last 20 years or so of working. I I grew up in a small town and went to a public school in a small town um, that was actually a very interesting place because it's a place that's historically known for being very wealthy, but there's like a major sort of town versus wealthy situation there. There's a major service industry and sort of towny thing, and then a whole interesting way of living that is not what the town really is. It's sort of a, a... in a year round or sort of meaningful way. And so my little high school struggled a few years after I left. Um, They almost lost their accreditation, but I had a wonderful experience there. I loved it. Um, And I think sport for me was a huge reason why I played for sports in high school because you have a little tiny little high school. They sort of like asked you to do everything. (laughs) So, um, but it was great because it was my way of feeling connected to everyone there. It was my way of connecting with teachers and staff 
and people who cared enough to work hard for me when I decided that I wanted to go on to do something else. Most of the folks in my hometown stay in Rhode Island for college or sort of don't go too far. And I, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to go do something different. And that was a big, sort of a big stress stretch for the folks around me. But I ended up at a place where I think, you know, I, I suspect we'll talk a little bit about what's wrong with sport in addition to what's right with sport. And I ended up in a place where I think they got the education and the sport right for college. And so it was competitive sports, but it wasn't sort of overwhelming competitive sports. It didn't take away from my education experience. It didn't take away from having sort of a full college life. And I was just totally in love with it. That I think is why I sort of stuck around in sport. I don't think I necessarily thought I'd have a career in sport. Um, but then once I was out of it, I sort of kept finding my way back. And I think it's because it was always such a big part of how I made friends, how I structured my life, um, and how I connected to and learned from new people. Okay. First and foremost, what were your four sports? I just have to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I played soccer. I ran indoor track. I played softball. And then in Rhode Island, there was this funny rule that if you played a spring sport, you could also do a field activity for track and field. So I threw the javelin for outdoor track. Oh, I did yeah. not see that coming. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it was just this funny rule in the state of Rhode Island where you could be a varsity athlete in another sport, but still do a field. And it wasn't going to be the hammer throw or anything like that. So, <laughs> Oh, I think the three of us need to, need to get together and practice yeah. the javelin. Yeah. Oh. Well, I don't think you'll be as good at it as us, Jessica, <laughs> because we're left-handed. Oh, well just played. So, you know, javelins are meant for that. I'm just kidding. Wait, Grainer, did you throw the javelin in high school? No. <laughs> they wouldn't let me near a javelin, although I was in North Dakota where we did throw the javelin. Many states don't. So um, yeah, yeah. that was part of our track experience. Yeah. Well, and we didn't even set the stage. And it's come up on a couple other other episodes, Grainer, that for both you and I, sport was also huge growing up. Mm -hmm. And I think, you, you know, you haven't gone in depth, but I, I'm under the impression that for the most part, we've both had a pretty good experience with sport. For you, Megan, thinking about which innately is just going to come up, right? Just the power that comes from belonging and from connection. I mean, go a little bit deeper into that. How did that then drive the creation of your organization? How did the plane land there? Great question. Uh, and I like the way you phrased it. How did the plane land there? Sort of like with your eyes over the pilot's face, I think, is sort of how the plane landed there. Um, after college, I worked in community mental health and thought that I'd go back to school and become a therapist. Spent a little time working in community mental health and realized that was not what I was going to do, that I was much more interested in sort of systems and policy work. So I went back to grad school for an urban policy and planning degree. My dad's an urban planner. My husband's an urban planner. I have urban planning in my deep in my bones. But when I was in grad, grad school, I found my way back to sport. I was an assistant coach for the women's soccer team while I was there. And I remember very clearly the head coach being like, okay, so what do you want to do with your life? And I started talking about like policy and she was like, oh, so you don't want to be a coach. 
I was like, no, I don't. But then I loved it. I, you know, I had such a great experience. I was coaching at a place that I had played against. So I was coaching in the conference that I played in as a college athlete. And I just like a wonderful, wonderful community. And then when I graduated, again, didn't think that I was going to be working in sport. And I basically tripped and fell into this space. A friend of a teammate called me up and said, I know you're done with school. Can you come and work at my sum at my uh, summer camp this summer? My soccer director dropped out. Can you run soccer camps in Dorchester, Massachusetts for third to fifth graders in the summer? I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour. And I was like, sold. <laughs> I was a poor grad student. So I showed up and I loved it. I had never really put together that not everybody had opportunities to play sport the way that I did. And I just thought it was just always available to everybody. So seeing young people have their first experience with sport, have this community through sport in the summer and communities where kids, I don't think we're always, you two know about this better than anyone, kids who weren't necessarily supported in the right ways in the education system. So summer was a huge break for them, a huge motivator for them. It sort of felt different to them. So watching them thrive that summer was really rewarding. The college women I had been coaching are wonderful, but they don't need it the same way, right? So I was like, oh, this is great. And he sort of said, um, I'm going back to school to become a principal. Do you want my job? And his job was as the program director for an organization called America Scores, which is a soccer creative writing and service learning program. And from there, I just got more and more into this space where there were organizations using sport intentionally to provide positive youth development opportunities for young people through that experience, I went to work for an organization where we um, started an AmeriCorps program for coaching. And so my job was to figure out how to train these AmeriCorps members to go out into the community, often to communities where they weren't familiar, right? often to communities where there were differences in their background and the young people that they were working with. And I had to figure out how to train them and I read this book called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. <laughs> um, and I had this moment where it was sort of like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind, right? Like things were sort of jumping off the page at me. And I thought, this is what the people that I work with are missing. You know, all the people who are working in after school are missing. This is what, in a lot of cases, people in schools that we're working with are missing. And it's certainly what these AmeriCorps members are missing in terms of a real understanding of what young people need. Megan, was that your organization then? So I was one of the co-founders of that organization. And then I left there about five years ago and started what is now the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport. Okay, I wanted to make you say that because it's my favorite name of any organization. <laughs> <laughs> I would love you to unpack that a little bit, particularly healing and justice. How did the organization you started evolve into the Center for Healing and Justice Through Sport? So when I was figuring out how to train these coaches all over the country, um, and they were coaches who were coaching skiing and snowboarding in the mountains in Colorado, they were coaching surfing in San Diego, they were coaching baseball and softball in Seattle, you know, sort of every sport you can imagine across the country, fencing in Harlem, all these great things. Through that program, I got to know a ton of organizations around the country because we were 
basically granting them humans to work in their programs. And we were training them before we sent them to the programs. As we were doing that, the programs were sort of saying, coming back to us and saying, well, this person has this great knowledge that I wish everybody who worked here had. And so we started doing more training that was focused on more organizations, not just these 22 to 26-year-old AmeriCorps members, but also the people who were working in the organizations in a more long-term capacity. So when I finally left that organization about five years ago, I was lucky to have these deep connections with people who had been on our training team, who had worked in these organizations. And we sort of said, let's all do something together. The first iteration of that was actually called We Coach. And it was a, it was the perfect way to transition out of what we had been doing and do more of what we wanted to do. And, and then just after the pandemic started, we had been talking about transitioning back to a nonprofit. And the pandemic just made that in just so clear because it was reinforcing the disparities between the haves and the have-nots in sport, and then obviously also exacerbating what I think are some of the things that sport can do such a good job of supporting, which are mental health and school performance. Um, You know, the achievement gap is growing, the mental health gap is growing, the access to sport gap is growing, and we like to think that we can sit at the center of all of those things if we push out sport that really is brain aware, if sport really is reflective enough on how it's creating good experiences for young people and not doing harm, then I think it helps all of those things if we can get it out there in the right way. Yeah, let's unpack that. You know, it has the potential to create all these great experiences. And I think that's true. Just like we all stated, all three of us have had really positive experiences. I think at the same time, all of us are pretty acutely attuned to the fact that that's not the experience for all of our student athletes, whether it stems from the inequities that continue to grow and grow about a student's capacity to access sport. You know, it's typically outside of the school day. That alone right there takes away so much for kids that just can't do that, that have to work, that parents can't afford it. And then another thing that I was writing down that was coming up for me that can be such a negative experience. And I don't know if you've experienced this, Steve, but I've worked with students in which sport is actually kind of held over their head and they have to like earn it. And if they do something in school that is quote unquote negative or inappropriate or stemming from whatever, the consequence is actually the removal of something that I find regulating, which is sport. So I don't know if I have a question, I guess just kind of, (laughs) did you ever experience that with kids? Definitely. And we had rules that, that we all had to follow as coaches. I mean, if their grades weren't good enough, sport was taken away. If their attitude in school wasn't good enough, sport was taken away. In essence, you talk about the healing part of the Center for Healing and Justice. We took the healing away from yeah. the kids who were hurting the most in doing that exacerbated the punishment they were already un- probably unfairly given. We took away the healing property of, of them coming to school. As we talk about the word healing, we know sport can be everything but healing. I hope we get into that a little bit too. Where do we see sport not? being used in a healing sort of way. Megan, what are you seeing? You you are in the trenches with our coaches. You're in schools with these people that are serving these students. Are coaches becoming more aware of options besides taking sports? I mean, I think that is very pervasive. The idea that you have to earn it, the idea that that your performance in school and your attitude in school and your sort of engagement in school are prerequisites to being able to participate in sport. In fact, there's a podcast and coaching 
a young guy who started a podcast and gotten some interesting people to come on it. He was just on social media saying, you know, he had a young person who didn't have the right attitude in school, in his classes, wasn't showing respect to his teachers and whoever else. And so he has something that he has to take and get signed by every teacher in order for him to be able to come to basketball practice. And in the comments, people are like, oh, accountability, yeah. And I'm like, or we could figure out why he's having a hard time in school. <laughs> so I think that is definitely still part of the problem in sport. I think, though, also what you're saying, Jessica, about when sport happens and where sport happens outside of school hours, but also increasingly youth sport is driving away from even school-based sport opportunities. It's driving towards a more privatized, to a more resource-intensive, to a less equal playing field kind of model where a lot of young people are, are not encouraged to play on their school teams because they're playing for some club that costs a lot of money and travels too much and does all the things that a club can do to sort of exploit resources out of families. I think it's both of those things. I think often we don't have the right orientation for sport as a tool for, like you said, Steve, to use the properties of sport to help the young people who need it the most. Instead, we use it as this reward. If we had to, and by we, you, <laughs> if you had to identify the properties of sport that are regulating, that do promote healing, that do promote learning, what would you say? Typically, when we talk to coaches, we break it down into three parts. The first is obviously connection. If you can create the opportunities for good, positive relationships between coaches and young people, and then amongst young people, you're off to a pretty good start. A uh, good start in terms of creating some safety for young people who might not have it in other environments. Then obviously just the movement piece. I know you've talked on this podcast a lot about patterned repetitive rhythmic activity and any chances you have to engage in that and use it not only to warm up our bodies, but also to think about it as sort of an intervention, as a reset, all the things we need in order to get our minds right too. And then the third piece, and this one, I think when the light goes on with this one for coaches, it really goes on, you know, it's sort of one of those aha pieces is the idea of manageable patterns of stress right? Resilience building stress, stress that's controlled, moderate, and predictable, because that's what skill building in sport really is. If you break it down, empowering coaches to use that beyond just, I'm teaching somebody how to do a left-handed layup, and I'm breaking it down into its smallest pieces and doing it over and over and over again. And then I'm going to push them a little bit harder, and I'm going to make them go a little faster. And this time I'm going to put a defender on them. And this time I'm going to make them t more tired when they're doing it, right? Like we keep adding the challenges, but we add them in not overwhelming ways. And so when coaches start to understand that, because it's how they teach skills, because they understand the pattern of learning that comes with that, if they can understand that around young people's regulation, if they can understand that around their tolerance of stress, stress being stress in their lives or stress in competition, all of those things, if they start to see their impact on those patterns of stress, then I think it can be really powerful. It shouldn't surprise me at all that in my day, and I'm older than you guys by a, a good ways. In my day, teachers would always say, you know, Joni is really a better student when she's in cross country. And they would always relate it to because cross country is her reward. 
And so she tries harder in school. Never, never did anyone, including myself, by the way, ever think that Joni's in cross country. So her brain is just flat out more efficient because she gets connection. She gets regulation. She gets all those things you just talked about. And now she's just a better reasoning person. She's just actually literally smarter because of being in cross country every day. But we never made that connection. I think that's a, a needed connection to see this is what opens us up to be better learners. Let's not take away something that helps us be better. It just doesn't make sense to even think that way, does it? Well, we've talked about that, Grainer, of students that actually, and you probably saw us, that have a significant, a significant harder time in school obtaining the academic curriculum presented to them, whether it's in the literacy, science, math world, they, they just can't obtain it. And yet you see them out on the field, on the court. I mean, if you think about sport, depending on what you're playing, right, you have to retain a lot of information. And it's just ironic that in that setting, those executive functioning skills are up and running and they're retaining a large sum of information that they have to recall under stress. And so, yeah, you would want that in the classroom as well. I was joking, becoming a mom made me really aware of the difference between sport and competition. I happen to be very competitive. And yet, you know, having a little daughter, she's three. I, I'm even trying to catch myself when we're going to gymnastics to not get competitive with her. So what, Megan, what's the difference in your perspective from sport and competition and I think sport's good for so many kids. I was just meeting with a student with the parent and this kid, and we couldn't figure out how to get her access to sport through school because everything was so competitive based. Mm -hmm. What are ways that we can get more students options? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think, you know, I'd add sort of to that continuum, just sort of movement and play. Um, and it's more sort of natural form. Jessica, what you're talking about, how do we get access to all kids along that spectrum where they need to be, right? Because my niece is 11, 12, 11, 11, 12, 11, 12. Um, she's 11 13. She's yeah. 13. <laughs> she loves to play soccer now and she's on her middle school team, but she came to it sort of late and her experience has been really bad that she didn't want to play soccer until she was like nine. And she had, she was like, put on the C team and she's fairly athletic. She's fairly coordinated. She's moved up quickly. She has a lot of support, but that alone can be so demoralizing. Or if you are trying to put a young person into sport when they're not ready for the competition, one of the other problems with youth sport, I think, and, and coaches in general is that coaches aren't actually good at teaching kids how to be competitive. It's like throw you into the deep end. Competition is part of sport. So if you're not ready for it, then you're not ready for a sport instead of sort of the trajectory of getting kids comfortable and ready for it and using all different kinds of competition, right? Not just like ultimate death match, one-on-one -on -one or team on team, but how do you compete with yourself? How do you create personal records for yourself? Helping kids become comfortable with challenge in a way that helps scaffold up to how do you become comfortable with real competition? And I think that is something that's missing in youth sport in a way that if you don't catch it 
at the right time, you sort of can end up in something that's not appropriate and hyper uber focused on winning. The other thing that it makes me think of is, is a guy named Joel Pippis from, from Hull in Calgary, where he's running a skateboarding program. Some of what you're talking about, Jessica, about how do you create entryways for young people into sport that aren't so competitive. I think some sports are doing a really good job of being more kid-directed, being more supportive of creativity um, and less focus on competition. Our entryway into sport for some of us who are a little older was the Sandlot. Pickup games, neighborhood games, kids leading kids, kids having to figure it out. Kids, totally. I, I don't particularly see that much of that going on. How does the Center for Healing and Justice through sport revive the spirit of the Sandlot? I think you're right, Steve. I think it is not a part of the culture in the same way. My perspective, and I think our perspective at the center, is that money is driving that. Money and adults are driving that. We believe there needs to be a real fundamental shift in what our priorities are from a youth sport perspective generally. The idea that five-year-olds need private coaches so that they can be ready for their D1 scholarship and then you know, off to their professional sports is just so misguided, but it's how a lot of people are making a lot of money. Until you can change some of that, um, it's really hard to convince parents, and Jessica, I imagine you're seeing this a little bit already, even I'm seeing it a little bit already, my little guy's a little bit younger than yours, but even just in our neighborhood, it's hard to convince parents that they shouldn't put their kid in the thing that everybody's doing, <laughs> right? And even if that thing that everybody's doing is not what you believe, how it should be structured. And I watched my niece enter late and have a really bad experience that could have turned her off. So it's like, do you risk keeping them out of these formal structures and then when they, if they do want to go in, it's going to be too late, or do you push them into it and then they're not going to like it? I think it's really hard to be a parent navigating this with young people right now. There is no silver lining to the pandemic if there is one. I think there has been at least some people stopping and thinking, do I really want to be driving across three state lines for my seven-year-old to be playing in a soccer tournament? Perhaps people are thinking a little bit more about being hyper-local in their, in their sport opportunities. But it's really complicated and messy in terms of who's profiting off of it. You know, money drives everything. And so even the, the resources of the coaches, a lot of the coaches that coach in our schools are also teachers. And we ask so much of our teachers yeah. already, and we underpay them already. And so to get, to get talked into then coaching and staying late, like you've got to be have a special place for sport or be hungry <laughs> as was the case at my house. I mean, I had to go. Co I mean, I love coaching, but you know, some, some teachers have to coach just well, to make I, it. But I think that's the point. It's you had to coach, but I'm guessing that you weren't getting paid probably what you should have been. The field of coaching is totally under-professionalized in so many ways. So at the same time that there are these big clubs making huge amounts of money off of families, in lots of cases, really intentionally exploiting families. In every other circumstance, coaches are dramatically underpaid or often even volunteers. And so there's no body that says you are required 
to have any training, any training. I always think about this when I think about the difference between NM sport and NME or NMT. In those places, you're working with people for whom it is their job to do the thing. For lots of people in sport more broadly, it is not their job to do the thing. It is one other thing they do. And there's a real difference in what you can expect from them, given what we put into them. And so until we are putting more resources behind them, both in terms of financial resources and educational resources, it's really hard to expect things to be different. The idea that they would then value free play, the idea that then they would be creating opportunities for young people to get developmentally what they need to get, as opposed to just win games in the hopes that maybe you'd get hired by somebody who'll pay you more. That's also a real constraint, I think, on coaching and on young people's experience. Well, and that equation right there has such potential to hurt vulnerable student athletes. 100%. I mean, women's soccer is a prime example of you have coaches in these positions and it happens in high schools and middle schools all the time that don't have the adequate training to work with these students. What are sort of the dreams, the hopes, or the things that are actually happening now? I watch a lot of youth sports because of my grandchildren and I see great coaches and I see horrible coaches. So where are we at with trying to provide training that's not too onerous, but effective and actually kind of life-giving? Um, I think it's really, really hard. Um, and this has been, you know, sort of the thing that I've been fighting for for a long time is to find that balance, is to strike the balance between what can actually really help empower coaches to do what kids need and the fact that there is generally no expectation that they do that <laughs> um, and nobody holding them accountable. There isn't going to be a ministry of sport in this country. And because of the money, lots of systems are not inclined to change. I hope that we are starting to see a shift in what maybe parents demand for their kids, what athletes demand from their experience, and have these moments of reckoning around what happens when you don't hold people accountable. The state of women's soccer, National Women's Soccer League, has just laid bare the insidious nature of abuse in soccer, particularly for girls and women, but generally in sport and then youth sport and the way it rolls up to that. But then we had, you know, Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles saying, I want something different from my experience and having a platform to do that in a way that maybe they didn't before. And then the last piece and, and still really don't know exactly how this, how this puzzle piece falls is how can parents demand more? How can parents say, wait, you don't expect them to have any training? You're not offering anything to coaches? I wish it was less true than it, than it still is, but the only things you can do with young people without some kind of certification are coach them and parent them. <laughs> Everything else we expect people to be certified to do, but people just drive up, drop their kids off, and leave their kids there with an adult that they don't know and doesn't have any qualifications. So until parents start saying, that's not okay, there's no sort of top down that's happening. So I feel like it has to come from the bottom up.
What else can parents do to advocate for their kids whose sports being taken away as a consequence? What language can we give them? What um, advice do you give to these parents to say, stop? I mean, I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, Steve, what you were saying about that connection, right? If parents can help the school community see that their kid is doing better when they have these opportunities, if you got a panel of neuroscientists up there, they'd tell you the same thing. This is what is so hard for me in schools, and you all know how schools work a whole lot better than I do, but what is so frustrating about taking PE out of school, taking recess out of school, using sport as a reward, not as a structured part of the day, all of the evidence says these things will help kids learn. These are the things that help kids learn, not butts and seats for longer hours. There is good evidence that movement, that play, that physical activity is going to help them self-regulate, be less disruptive in school, and learn. I was just thinking back to your beginning. What did people learn from when they had a program that had soccer and writing of poetry? So in the youth sport world, there's the traditional youth sport world and the one that reaches the most kids. But then there's this whole space called the sports-based youth development space. There are great programs out there that are doing these things that don't use sport as a reward. There's a school called the Urban Dove in New York City for overaged, undercredited kids, the place where all of the kids have been failed by the education system. They're all overaged, undercredited. They have fewer than three credits in their first year of high school. And they come to a place that has a fully integrated sport and learning environment. And they have 78% attendance with the kids who didn't go to school. So there's programs out there doing this work well. They're concentrated in communities where people are trying to overcome extreme gaps, extreme injustices, extreme exploitation, and, and intentional divestment in communities. Isn't that cool? Once again, we're being taught by people on the margins how to do 100%. things right. How to do 100%. it right. 100%. Yeah. Anything else that we can say that would encourage schools to keep options for the C-teams, to keep equity for all the kids regardless of performance skill set. I guess I don't even know totally. what I would say. I mean, yeah, it, it just gets it's it's heartbreaking to me to see that some of these schools you you know you're, you got JV and varsity and that's it. Totally, the sports space is a triangle in two ways. It's a triangle in terms of resources. In order to reach the pinnacle, you just have to keep pumping more and more resources into it, or it's a funnel. Maybe fewer and fewer people yeah. get there because. It's more and more expensive, more and more time, more and more everything. And the same thing is true with skill. Kids get conveniently pushed out along the way. And it's all about intramural sports. It's about a bunch of parents who get together and all stand on a field and let their kids do whatever they want to do. My intramural basketball team learned champs three years in a row i'm as proud of that as i am of my of my interscholastic college just, i just love that nugget that you just <laughs> dropped in there by the way okay next time together we're gonna play hoops yeah oh god i always i love i love soccer but i say if i would have two to three more inches on me i would have basketball jumped into basketball yeah. Ooh, it was my jam 
my sophomore year, I was on the basketball team and the basketball coach, I had been practicing trying to volley the ball into the net with my feet. Practice hadn't started. Basketball was, it was not during basketball time, but he said, you know, you're going to have to give up soccer in the winter. You're not going to be able to play or you're going to risk not being on the basketball team. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to go run track then. (laughs) (laughs) That was my last basketball practice. Uh, Jokes on them. Jokes on them. Well, deuces. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) See you later when I throw the javelin at you. Um, those are the other misguided things that coaches do say you have to focus on one sport I wasn't going to be a professional basketball player no one was fooled into thinking that so why wouldn't you let me play soccer too it makes no sense I think what you're doing with your organization is phenomenal thank you again I realized I'm slightly biased because I love sport which I should also add when Chris and I got married she made me promise that I would never coach my daughter which should I probably should have led with that just to show you where I come (laughs) in the sport world Same. prenup yeah. that's in the prenup and it should have been that was the one prenup you can't coach Quinn's soccer team yeah there's no question my husband's gonna have to coach the kids soccer yeah yeah um but you all are doing yeah such good work and I'm and I'm grateful that you're getting it out there and I thank you I hope you know that you're making a difference I know sometimes in this big world that it seems like we're always fighting and you make it an inch and you're like all that work for an inch, but you're, you're mm-hmm. truly changing the lives of so many student athletes. And I am so grateful that you're doing that. Thank you. That's very kind. I want to recognize that it's late where you're at. It's, it's a, te- it's a past 10. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we'll let you go. We'll let you go to bed. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us my your pleasure. time. Thank you. It means a lot. It means a lot that you shared your insight with us. And how how can you not bring back the Center for Healing and Justice through sport? Oh, well, it's my favorite name. It's your favorite name. Trust it's me, I heard about name. it. I heard about it all yesterday. It's my favorite name. Megan, thank you so much for everything. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk soon. Take care.